Kelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are talking about Act 4 of Kentucky Route Zero. If you didn't catch the first couple of episodes of this series, go back there and start from there. Um, Act 4 is a... Ooh, what a monster. It's a, it's a long one, and it's, uh, it's brutal. But before we get there, um, we should talk a little bit about the, the interlude between Acts 3 and 4, uh, titled Here and There Along the Echo. This... This thing is so silly. I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's where we get introduced to a new character. Well, we've seen him very, very briefly in Act 2, uh, but uh, shows up here uh, as a voice character for the first time. Uh, this is Will, uh, who is the proprietor of, what's it called? The, the Bureau of Secret Tourism. The Bureau of Secret Tourism, which is not, in fact, a bureau. It's actually just Will's pet project. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And um, so, oh, wow. This this guy is nuts, right? So, like, um, we've seen him before. He was the organist uh, in the bicycle shorts. And uh, he was the person operating the sound desk at the uh, the entertainment. Uh, so we, we, get a, we get a voiced character here. And um, it's... The setup here is so weird because it's just the the whole thing is just a shot of a telephone and you pick up the handle and you dial the number that's on a slip of paper beside the telephone and get this beautifully cheesy intro music and uh, Will introducing you to the concept of this Bureau of Secret Tourism um, and these these like menu options and you dial through the menus. It's It's wonderful. So this was originally an actual phone line. Uh, that people could dial into. Um, uh, but for the purposes of posterity, it's been turned into an element of this video game. Mm-hmm. The um, So like at, at some points in the dialogue tree here, um, you will, will, uh, will prompt you to call back at an extension to leave a message um, for, some, for various purposes. And that's what the hook was um, for the real phone line, like that if you actually dialed this number, you would get through to it. And if you dialed those extensions, you could actually leave the messages, um, which will come back to us in Act 4. We will hear playback of some of these messages that people left. Um, yeah, it's kind of a player player or audience participation dimension of this game. Uh, and, you know, obviously something is lost uh, in this recreation of it because you call the extension... And obviously, you can't it just goes uh, blank. Yeah. You can't leave a message. <laughs> so the interactive develop, uh, dimension of this is is significantly reduced compared to what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a shame, but but hey, um, the uh, it, it becomes fairly apparent pretty quickly that Will is insane as well. Like that because um, like the the menu options here are very strange, and like he'll be like, oh, so for. Um, uh, let, let's just let's read out the thing. So, um, yeah. So it's like the the, the initial uh, options are for a menu of our resources. Press one. If you have an extension to dial, press nine. For more information about our organization, press three. If you don't remember dialing this number at all, press five. Um, and like, there's stuff like oh, you know, like if you're holding a snake and you don't remember why, press this number. Um, he does this weird, uh, really fun, like, subtree where it's, like, different kinds of water, where he'll play back, like, a, a sound of water and then be like, that was fast water. And then a different one, that was water from a cup. <laughs> it's like, 
this guy is nuts. <laughs> and it comes across so beautifully in the voice acting and, and the dialogue. Definitely very eccentric, but most of the things that we see discussed in this phone tree are things that are going to show up along the echo. So he's, it's like, he's kind of documenting this strange magical realist place and without the context, it just sounds insane. (laughs) It sounds deranged. Yeah. It, It is like pretty much, you know, a tourist guide of the echo. It's just not a very good one because it, it's 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 very like empirical uh, and it doesn't actually like frame the subject for you in any useful way. It's just like, oh, here are things that are on the echo. But like, what is the echo? What are these things? Why are they there? What is the context? None of this stuff is included. It's just like, oh, yeah. Like, for instance, if you don't remi- remember dialing this number, right? That seems like a very strange thing. But we later learn that there are all kinds of switchboard problems that are happening on the Echo. (laughs) Yeah, true, right? So there's actually a reason for that entry to be there. It's just not explained why it would be there. So it's it's very much like like laying breadcrumbs for the audience uh, to sort of refer back to as they play through Act 4. And it's it's def- it's doing that thing again where it's priming the player for what's coming next in the main act, um, and this is priming you for the bizarreness and um, distorted reality of the Echo River. Um, yeah, um, and I, I guess you know what was your impression of Will from? Um, he seemed like he seemed he seemed like a friendly older chap and definitely had a kind of weird drifter vibe about him but like also highly educated cuz like he he can talk authoritatively about bird song and music and uh wildlife and life on the river it's it seemed like this guy reminded me a lot of you know, very knowledgeable older folk who are a bit strange. Um, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't remember getting any other very strong impressions, though. I I found Will to be quite tedious, um, and you know, it's it's mostly in his delivery. Like he speaks very in this very languid, slow. Uh, cadence and he he never really has a point to anything he's saying (laughs) it's very rambling he's just just recounting things uh, and they just kind of end with no apparent reason so he kind of reminds me of like very long-winded Texans but he's as you said he's He's quite educated. He's got a different vibe to him, this kind of like mellow drifter vibe instead of just someone who is very animated about telling you something of no consequence because uh, they're so caught up in their own mental narrative. Um, so whenever, you know, Will's dialogue came up in Act 4, I always like read it to myself in this voice that you get on here and there along the echo. So like incredibly slow, (laughs) just kind of meandering, you know, he's very much the the sort of like avatar of the echo, right? 
Yeah, definitely, right? He's the, he's the kind of guy who's going to be just, like, sitting there with a fucking fishing line tied around his toe, you know, just taking it easy. Yeah, it's... I, I, I'm with you. I think that it, it's a bit much, perhaps. I think it's it's done some violence by the structure of the phone menu, because in a lot of cases, you actually have to put down the receiver and dial the number again to get back to the main menu, which is... It's a lot. Like, I, I kind of wish they'd put in something like if you press the hash key, it would just dump you back to the main menu. Um... And having to hear those couple of introductory um, spiels again and again to get through most of the dialogue tree is a bit much. I think this is this is one of the this is probably the only part of this whole saga that I, I struggle to think that I'd ever actually play through again in full. Like I think I would basically skip this one most times um, from here on out because um, I think I've I think I've gotten everything out of it. Yeah, I've done it. I've done the full thing twice at this point. So uh, I, I think it's 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 you know it's certainly like incredibly cumbersome dealing with the interface to this. Uh, but I guess there's a couple dimensions to that. The first is that we're going to see an act for a whole lot of focus on um, archaic analog media. Um, which has been something that we've seen a lot in the game as like interactive media or modes of communication. But these often tend to be in act for uh, records, um, things that have been recorded on archaic analog media. Um, and we get that certainly with, uh, you know, the Bureau of Secret Tourism. It's, it's very, very cumbersome. Um, and the second thing is like, yeah, it feels true to Will's character that he wouldn't actually go through that much effort to, uh, he wouldn't go through that much effort to make it a good user experience. Cause you'd just be like, well, you know, who cares? You can just, <laughs> time is immaterial. You just kind of vibe with it. Yeah. 100%. There's, there's a couple of, um, interesting points here as well that like Will does say that the, um, this phone line is un- unwittingly loaned to us from the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces. So this is the phone that's on the desk uh, in the waiting area <laughs> of the fucking Bureau, where we, fa- <laughs> yeah, where we found the, um, where we found the the brochure from the Bureau of Secret Tourism uh, in Act Two. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just love that idea that they've unwillingly loaned him the phone line or unwittingly. Um, yeah, and there is a scene later on where we actually see the phone getting run in the the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. Um, I just also want to highlight by a long stretch the most obnoxious part of this, which is like um, down in a sub menu. It's, it's like you dial through to a menu that's about sounds, and he's like. A couple of options then. If you are hearing organ music, press three. And if you press three, he goes, oh, lucky you. Does it sound like this? And then plays like solidly 12 minutes of fucking organ music over the phone to you. And if if at the end of that you answer yes, he's like, um, oh, that's fine. I, I don't know where that's coming from. But if you answer no, he's like, yeah, it's really nice though, isn't it? Let's listen to it again. And just plays the fucking thing again. And the only way out of it is to hang up. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Um there's also a very cute submenu where it's it's about birdsong, uh, identifying different birds. And so he, he takes a weird character turn here where, like, um, for one of the options, he's like, ah, that's the lonesome teal, an ugly, spiteful little thing. It's like, wow, that's 
kind of weird considering how jovial and, uh, and laid back he's been. Um, but hey, um, there's a lot of fun here. It's just, there's not much to talk about really. Um, it's more of a audio kinesthetic kind of experience. I don't know. I might, I might try that phone line and see if it's still hooked up. Um, it'd be good fun to, uh, dial it at least once. Um, but Hey, I, th- I have a feeling that wouldn't be the case anymore. Uh, oh, it's been shut down by the consolidated power company. Oh, I'd imagine, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> oh, well. The skeletons get uh, get to take away all the good stuff. So, Act 4. Uh, wow, what a fucking monster. It's very oppressive in atmosphere. <laughs> very slow. Very high pressure, weirdly. Um, and the, the themes here are really interesting and, and strange. Like, it's a very marked change of tone and pace. Because the, the pace is now dictated by a boat... Um, you don't get to go as you please. Um, and the themes are now shifting from, kind of following on from the regret theme of the previous act, f- 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 shifting into memory and forgetting and loss and these like transitions and thresholds. Um, and, and a strong theme of like lives as accumulations of memories. Uh, some of which, some of which the characters uh, very much want to repress and, and not have lived. Yeah, it's... Um in many ways a liminal space uh but it's a very kind of uh fuzzy line you could say uh the the we go from the climax of act three into this falling movement um or sorry falling action but it's there's very little action it's actually it's like a it's like an extremely long tail after that ramp up in act three um that is uh, yeah it's it's drifting literally along a river uh which is basically like the river version of the zero um uh and it 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 doesn't focus on conway anymore he's very much turned into an npc um and we get a lot of time uh, this time around with uh, Shannon uh, and quite a bit with uh, Johnny and Junebug uh, and a little bit of time with Ezra as well. Uh, but uh, Conway is a kind of shadow in the background that is just, you know, he's he's just basically drinking himself to death um, in a very depressive way. Uh, he's a very sad drunk. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that's that's kind of what there is to say about the, the generalities of this this place. Um, well, I guess I guess one more thing is that um, you can't you definitely can't see all the material at once because the the stops along the river are in paired scenes where you can either stay on the boat and see one scene or get off the boat and see another so you need to do two run-throughs of this act to see everything Uh, yeah generally the um the on-boat scenes are quite short and compact whereas the the more epic sprawling scenes that we're accustomed to are are off the boat that's right that's right um and i guess there's one other thing to say about um this this chapter which is that uh I'm trying to remember. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> my, my train of my train of thought was interrupted. Uh-uh. Uh, I I think. Uh, oh boy! 
that's too resonant with the themes here. I don't it's like it. It's too resonant. You have to keep it in there. Uh, yeah, I think it might come back to me. We'll see. It's 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 here and there along the echo. Who knows? <laughs> Somewhere. Christ. Oh well. Um, so we 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 get this cold open on um, the me- uh, a mechanical mammoth. This is the mammoth we saw in the very last frame uh, of the previous act. Um, and it's fritzing out, and Will is standing there in front of it. He's he's a me- he's the mechanic trying to fix this thing. So he's he's reading the manual, um, which has some interesting bits in it, like with the context backlash and stuff like that. That's very reminiscent of cybernetics. Um, yeah, well, it, it's it's very interesting. Like the mammoth on the back of this ship is obviously like an animatronic creature, you know, just like you'd see a Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. Um, or used to, I guess. Uh, but, um, when you read the manual, there's this kind of suggestion of like effective gears and stuff. And it's like, it it reminded me a lot of, um, Ashby's homeostat in design for a brain, uh, listeners who have, uh, listened to, uh, our Pickering episodes, uh, might remember this. It was a very strange, uh, mechanical computer uh, that would react to its environment um, and just sort of was like incomprehensible in to everyone who encountered it. Um, and that's very much what the manual for this mammoth reminded me of. Yeah, definitely, right, because it's, it's presenting the mammoth as um, a, a sensitive machine that's, that's quite sensitive to its environment. And... Um, it's described almost as like a living system, right? Like the, the debugging of this thing is going to be very hard because it's essentially alive. Um, and some of the menu head, some of the like chapter headings are quite evocative. Like it, it has a chapter on the passage of time, which is like they have to they have to do a philosophical treatise on the nature of time before they can explain how that affects the mammoth. Um, uh, but as as Junebug walks up uh, to Will, Will just chucks the fucking manual into the water and is like, "Yeah, be done with this." Yeah, he's he's only he's only a mechanic in the barest sense of the term. He's like a person who has been told to do mechanical work, but has no actual specialty in this stuff. De facto mechanic, uh, whereas Junebug is an actual mechanic, and they have a bit of chatter about that. Um, notably, here Junebug is dressed rather smartly, like an admiral. She has a cool coat on. Um, and later we'll see that Johnny is dressed a bit like Jacques Cousteau, right? The the French um, nautical guy with the red hat. And that, I have to wonder, where where are they keeping these outfits? Because they don't have any luggage with them, it seems. I wonder if they've got, like, um, hollow chest cavities, right? That, like, that there's a wardrobe in there. Because, like, they, they change their outfits quite a bit uh, over the course of these couple of acts. Possible, but, you know, jackets are bulky, so uh, might be tough. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, they do mention them uh, in Act 4 here uh, once or twice. It's like, you know, well, this is the one of the parts of our lives that we enjoy is, like, changing outfits according to our mood and stuff. Playing dress-up, yeah. Um, I just have no idea where they would keep them because, like, there's clearly no room for that on the, the bike either. Uh, but, hey. Um, so the opening chatter is pretty pretty straightforward, right? Like, um, they've picked up... Um, the crew, um, or our, our gang, they've picked them up at the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces and they're tagging along uh, on the river now. Um, and Will is, he's wondering, because uh, like he has this kind of dialogue that he's like, he's been on this this river for more than half of his life, right? And, like, and he's, um, he's seen all sorts of things come and go. Um, 
and he's wondering what kind of a night this is going to be. Like he'll, it's, it's one of these nights where he's going to meet a lot of new strange people or where he meets an old friend on an unfamiliar shore. Um, wonder which of those it's going to be. It's, it's very like a, I don't know, like a Shakespeare opening, you know? It's like, ah, on, on this accursed night, what, what foul fate awaits our, um, our plucky um, whatever. Well, and this is like interesting because the whole thing is being recounted by Will. And this is kind of Will's story. But because Will is a character who has no real direction, it's just sort of, um, it's interesting how everything that happens is a consequence of what began or what was incited by the climax, right? You know, that's what a falling action is. But where the whole falling action is reframed from Will's perspective. So you get this very strong sense that like, yes, all of this is meaningful for our main cast of characters. But for Will, this is just another night. Like, he runs into these kinds of people all the time. All these these weird drifters. There's even, like, um, I think it's it's actually going to be after we set sail, after the next next scene, but, like, and he's, as he's narrating a lot as we go along the river, um, that he, he says, like, oh, one night these, this gang of weirdos came aboard. You know, there was, there was a, a woman, a kid, two robots, and a guy whose name I didn't get. And it's, like, he even, like, he, Conway is drifting into the background so much that even for Will... Re- retelling the story he's like i don't even really remember who that person was he's typically just referred to as the old man in this act by other people because he's not really bothering to introduce himself or anything he knows where he's going he's hanging around yeah and uh he's quite quite confident of where he's going to end up um yes yeah, so we get the first proper title card for the mucky mammoth which is the name of this little boat and we're following shannon she's standing at the prow uh, of the boat and she can go around either to talk to kate or to will um she has to talk to both basically uh kate is the captain of the ship uh she's around one side um and she kind of it's kind of just setting us up for like regrounding our expectations of what's going on that we are we're on our way to dogwood drive um but it's going to be a couple of stops first before we get to the silo of late reflections which is the stop-off um, for Dogwood Drive. So we're going to be on board for a while. Uh, there's a couple of things to do before we get there, because the this boat um, does things like picking up garbage and mail, um, doing errands, deliveries, odd jobs, and so on. Yeah, it's so weird because it's a tugboat, <laughs> but it doesn't tug anything. It's so unsuited to this task. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it's actually like, I mean, I don't know... Like, I assume tugboats are a thing on, like, the Mississippi, but I don't know if they have, like, other kinds of, like, riverboats, more like a patrol boat, that would do this kind of work. You know, it's it's sort of a strange fit that it's a tugboat. Well, and then, of course, there's a giant mammoth on the back <laughs> for no reason. Does anyone ever explain why? Like, I guess you could hook things up to its snout. I don't know. It's so fucking strange like that, that mammoth is there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. I guess it's that kind of theme of, like, uh, this pre- precarious repurposing of, of driftwood, basically, that, like, maybe Kate just found the boat one day and was like, oh, wow, cool. Well, we'll, we'll go do some river stuff. Um, yeah. Um, and the, the boat itself as a set piece is really quite impressive, right? Um, uh, it's, again, uh, one of those scenes where the camera will uh, rotate around the... Um, it's very, like, theater-in-the-round kind of a uh, uh, set. 
um, where the camera just like rotates around this boat. Uh, but it's it's interesting because the boat sort of bobs up and down with the waves and the water and it's like rocking back and forth and the camera pans around it very smoothly. Um, and then when you go inside, the walls sort of like fade away in this really interesting pattern. Um, so you can see the interior of the boat. Um, so yeah, just, I think this was probably the, just the way that the, the panning around the boat was so smooth was the technically the most impressive thing to me about this chapter. Yeah, definitely. Right. And I think, um, both for this boat and for a bunch of other locations, they're doing a lot of this physical modeling stuff where, um, yeah, there's these very lively environments. And I think it works so well that you barely notice it until you do notice it. And you're like, wow, geez, they're actually doing a lot here. That's not really standard. And I could then imagine, I could imagine a much worse version of this where they didn't have the physical modeling or the bobbing or any of that kind of stuff, which would just look, would, would just look so much less convincing as like, oh, these people are on a river. Um, it was super impressive technically. Um, and maybe yeah, going back to limits and demonstrations, this... it's that thing that they were testing there, the, like the physical modeling, um, you know, like three objects rubber banded together. How do they interact sort of thing? Right. And the, the difference here is that the camera's on the outside instead of the inside of the circle. But um, it is it is really impressive. And uh, um, it's it's very much like a really cool, detailed diorama that you can interact with. It is very much so. Um, one of the details I love from when, when you go inside is that like you can, you can see the, um, some of the pipe work and so on, but you can also see these little, the little hermit crabs scuttling around, uh, in, in the, in, in the, in the spaces. Um, and they've got their like printer cartridge, uh, shells on. It's, it's very nice. Um, uh, there's a dog here, Valkyrie, um, who's uh, Kate, uh, Kate's pet. Um, she also, like, Shannon asks about the cat that's on board, and Kate has no idea that there was a cat on board. Um, so, hey. Um, it becomes apparent that Kate is very into mushrooms. Uh, she's, she's offering tea made of mushrooms and so on. Um, and she also mentions something that, like, uh, you know, Shannon, oh, yeah, you could, you could go down to the video room if you like and have a poke around in there. We've got some really weird tapes, um, which will, will become relevant later. Um, if we flip over to the other side, we can talk to Will, uh, who gives us a bit more of a backstory um, of his, his life as a drifter. He was a classically trained organist and a minor in French literature. Um, he used to teach theatre at the local university, hence his role in the entertainment, um, until budget cuts left him in the role of a janitor, and then he just basically left. He's been drifting ever since and drifted down to the, to the Echo. Uh, you've got a note here that he's definitely Tom. I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he he's he's, a, he's definitely Tom O'Brien. Like he's a classically trained organist. <laughs> he has done pretty much everything. Uh, he's got a story for everything, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just he's a very Tom character. Very much so. Um, yeah. I wonder what Tom yeah. would think of that. I think Tom is Tom is a much more sort of you know lively person, but they've got that kind of similar biography about them which really made me laugh because the first time i saw the organist i was like oh it's tom <laughs> and then i and then i heard this life story and i was like it's definitely tom it's <laughs> oh fantastic yeah there, there's there's another detail here that is quite odd and like it it hints at 
a lot of tantalizing possible things about this character that aren't really fleshed out entirely, but are um, are there in hint form. That he seems to be um, very preoccupied with forgetting and like deliberately forgetting, right? Like that is 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 his whole shtick is about memory and stories, but specifically about amnesia and like deliberate amnesia because he he remarks here that um, uh, where's the quote? Anyway, that's all. That's all I try to remember anymore. I listen to the river stories and my own stories get fainter and fainter. Um, which will be a recurring theme with him that like his his own there's something in his past that he desperately wants to erase or to forget about. Um which I think to to the story's credit, they I don't think ever actually put on screen uh, or give you any real explanation for. It's just a it's just a trait of this character. Well, you know, as he says like he was a wanderer on the land. Like, he used to just kind of walk across fields and stuff, and then he ended up getting this job at the university. It's, you know, you can kind of imagine he might have had a rough start to life in some way. Yeah. Uh, And then just the fact that, like, you know, university budget cuts destroyed any sense of stability in his life. Uh, That that kind of trauma is maybe worth forgetting as well. I I definitely think so. I guess maybe... What I was thinking was that, like, I can imagine a much worse version of the story that, like, actually tells us what the trauma was. Um, whereas, like, they, they play a very nice game here of, like, hinting at this stuff without ever re- re- revealing it. Um, at this point, Ezra runs up to Shannon uh, looking for batteries uh, for Johnny's tape recorder. Um, Shannon just fishes six batteries out of her pocket and gives them. He's like, yeah, these will probably work. They're all all different types. <laughs> At least one of these might work. It's like, do you have any batteries? She's like, of course. <laughs> yeah. Like, who do you think I have? Of course I have batteries. But then she has like one AAA, one AA. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, there's no pairs of anything, but then it happens to work. It somehow works. Um, I wonder, he's, he's doing that trick where you put the one good battery in with the dead one um, and get like a quarter of the lifetime out of out of them. Um, but Ezra pops inside then, and we get this little transition to where we could the, the walls peel away. Um, our two musicians are sitting there with this new character, Clara, uh, who's also a musician. She's out on tour. Um, and they, these, these folks know each other from way back, right? Like they're, they've, they've inter, they've in, intersected before. Um, there's some mention of her doing a show tonight. Um, and that uh, Serrano, this other musician, is playing at the Rum Colony, uh, which is lampshading a place we're going to go to. Um, Johnny's thrilled that Ezra's found the tape recorder and, and found the batteries for it, um, and tasks him with going around the ship uh, just recording found sounds, you know, um, for yeah, which is sweet. He's, he's, he's getting, yeah, getting Ezra on that, like, found music kind of uh, Puya... Puya style uh, music. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to get him into wall noise, you know? Um, get him into some real fucking crazy stuff. Um, but it's also just very sweet that Johnny is, like, concerned with keeping Ezra entertained. Like, he has a, a toy to play with. Um, which is, is setting up this other... I guess, I mean, it's a continuation, maybe, of something that was hinted at in the previous act. But um, this is the act in which Johnny and Junebug will start to take more of a kind of parental role over Ezra or at least you'll have the option to I consider that stuff canonical though like fuck anyone who doesn't go that path you know with, with these characters <laughs> yeah I, I think I somehow ended up not getting that but it was weird this this time around because I seemed to answer things that were directed that way so 
I don't I don't know what happened exactly, but I I'm curious then. Like I mean I I, I wonder how many hidden flags this thing tracks for for certain things to play out in Act Five because it it's always seemed to me like it was one of those things you could get like I don't know I mean I, yeah how, how many flags is it keeping track of to make that work very weird yeah I don't know strange but uh, uh, the other thing I realized about um, Johnny and why um, Junebug calls him Cricket uh, is because it's you know Johnny John uh, nickname for John is Jim and. It's Jiminy Cricket, right? <laughs> okay, the, yeah. the, gotcha. the character, yeah, fictional character. So that's that's where the name comes from. I'm pretty sure. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. That makes more. That makes quite a bit of sense, actually. Um, I guess yeah. So like J- Jiminy Cricket and then Ajun Bug. You know, that's it. All it all ties together. Um, uh, if Ezra goes and records the cat uh, for a couple of moments, like the, the camera does this nice little zoom in and like a focus kind of sound and the tape sound is there, um, which is actually one of the really nice ways of getting close-ups on these models. Um, sometimes these can make for, for very fun little micro scenes. Um, but while he does that, Conway walks into frame holding a beer can and also his arm is now a skeleton glowing orange thing, which is very disturbing to look at. Um at that point, then, the, 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 the control of the camera actually silently switches to Conway as he walks out, and you don't have control over this. He will walk out to out of the hatch and walk up to where Shannon is, which is maybe hinting at the loss of control of Conway uh, that we're, we're going to have more of. Um, Shannon is concerned, as always, um, for, for his drinking. Um, Conway actually forgets why he came up. He's kind of, which is, again, this memory theme that we're going to see repeated that like, he's like, oh, you know, that thing where you walk through a door and you forget why you walked through it. Um, And we close out on Shannon kind of asking, like, do you really need to go work at the distillery? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you need to, you need to repay his debt. Like he's, he's he's doing that thing that um, Harry does, a debt's a debt. Um, That kind of very, uh, I don't know, like macho sort of commitment to, uh, to misery. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta pay your debts. Like, oh, like, just, you know, ignoring the situation, the context, why it happened, all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, you know, you just, you gotta pay your debts. That's the thing people say you should do. Ah, man, renege on that shit. Move to California. You know, they'll never find you there. (laughs) Actually, this, this is an interesting one in that, like, the, um, the solution to this is is actually so old timey. It's just like do what people did back then. Just fucking skip town and go to California. They're not they're going to find you out there, man. You know. Yes, uh, totally. Um, this, do the skeleton people have agents out in California? Probably not. We switch then to uh, the. I guess it's I guess it's what counts as the overworld here, where it's the river. Um, we have the little animation of the boat, uh, the little wireframe boat bobbing down the river, uh, where Will is recounting these kind of like. For, for every one of these overworld things, it'll be Will re- reciting some shaggy dog story or whatever. Um, and a lot of them, they're cute, but they're like kind of inconsequential. And I, I find myself just kind of tapping the X button as fast as possible to get through some of these. Probably now is the fourth time I've seen them. So It's kind of painting the scene of what the Echo's like. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess, yeah. He does make this point about uh, he his perspective is that the more stories are told and passed around and retold, the more real they are. Uh, this is kind of, you know, I think you had written your truth is communal. Um, 
don't agree with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I I find this to be very dubious. Uh, you know, it's he's it, it seems highly motivated, right? For for Will, like this is he desperately wants this like fictive angle to work for some reason. Yeah, and like I think you know Will in that regard kind of reminds me of like you know like a QAnon person or an anti-vaxxer but without all the vitriol like he's like very mellow but he has that same kind of like engagement in fiction that that uh conspiracy theory folks do yeah definitely right don't get this guy facebook it'd be awful and yeah yeah no definitely don't give this guy facebook just keep him on that bureau of secret tourism uh but yeah i mean it just reminded me of like a a friend of mine who um, volunteered around Fukushima after the tsunami hit there and after the earthquake, you know, he was doing his master's degree on rumors because he was really interested in these kinds of malicious rumors that spread in the wake of the disaster. Um, and like why they spread, how they spread and like these were things that were not true and caused people to actually get hurt, you know? And I think when I encounter somebody like Will, who's just like, oh yeah, you know, the more you tell stories, the more real they are. It's like, well, yeah, they're real in the sense that they have effects, but it doesn't mean they're true. <laughs> <laughs> Is that definition of reality as just like having causal force, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So so I, I, I find this, uh, you know, this dimension of Will is quite harmless and eccentric, but if you take his theories to logical or to their logical conclusions, it's really quite ugly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, these are people who are existing on that kind of like, I think as you put it, they're like right at the water level, right on the border of, uh, you, you mentioned this in the green room. Uh, uh, of being underwater uh, and at that level of precarity uh, maybe this weird dreamlike state uh, is is a good coping mechanism yeah that's definitely the, the context to keep in mind is that like the echo river is I mean it, it's it, it it definitely runs alongside the zero but like it seems on some level to be ontologically below the zero somehow like it's it's even further underground and the people we meet here are some somehow even more precarious and um closer to disaster than the people above ground and like there's there's remarks along the way that like when there's a storm things wash down from the surface into the into the echo and so some of the landmarks we encounter actually were above ground before and it, it, there's a sense that everything is sinking it feels like um the 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 kind of drag heap in Dark Souls Three, like this like pit at the end of time where everything falls into eventually, um, and like yeah, the, the the people here seem even closer to disaster, and like just literally close closer to the waterline, closer to drowning than um, than they did before, and that's that's a it's an incredible escalation of um, tension at the same time as they do this like very languid. Uh, easy pace. It's it's somehow more oppressive, even even with that kind of relaxed pace, which is quite a, quite an achievement. Um, 
So we're going to go through the scenes as we get them, and we're going to do them in pairs. I guess the way I've ordered them in the notes is that we have the off-boat scene first, and then the on-boat scene. Um, so the first off-boat scene is a gas station, um, which uh, Kate notes uh, seems to be in a, the wrong location tonight, <laughs> uh, because things on the Echo change location. Uh, this gas station is not actually moored to anything, it's just drifting on uh, flotation devices. Um, the general structure of the scene is that... Um, uh, Junebug and Johnny um, are just hanging around at the gas station. They're they're trying to get snacks before they get back on board. Um, Junebug goes in first to look around while Johnny hangs out with Val, the dog, and has a chat. And then they switch around. Johnny goes in. And the, the general content of their thoughts is that they're starting to wonder if they could... So firstly, they, they seem to be at... They're, they're at a crossroads, right? Like they're... They say to Kate that, like, we don't... We just don't know where we'll be tomorrow. Um... And they're both kind of ruminating on whether they could have an extra person come along with them, either maybe a pet or maybe Ezra. Um, this is where we start to get those explicit options to like have the characters nudged in the direction of adopting Ezra. Which may spoiler for Act 5, but whatever. We're, we're this far in, you know. <laughs> what can you do? Did you get the scenes with the people who come into the gas station and chat with the characters? I did. So you get, you get two people, Norm and some other guy, I... Uh, they're they're cute little interjections but i guess that maybe the, this act has a lot of this where it's like um very cute and twee sort of interjections from characters and like commentary from will that is just just really tangential to the to the main plot which is is weird because at, at this point in the like progress of the game i'm now very very interested in the main plot and like where these characters are going but then I find a lot of the time when I when I've played through this act, I'm like, ah, whatever, Norm, get out of the fucking way. I want to hear about this like tension that's going on in in Junebug's head, you know? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's interesting here because we start to actually get solo scenes with, with Johnny. Um, I think for the first time in the game, uh, so that's that's kind of cool that we get a little bit of uh, his interiority. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, like it's that extremely extended falling action, right? That, that like, you know, we've had the climax, we want to see what the consequences are and they just kind of piece them out very slowly and languidly throughout this chapter, as opposed to being like, okay, there's the climax and this is what happens. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, like, I think the content here is all good. It's just maybe a bit much in, in some dimension. Like, the the sort of shaggy dog stories and stuff are, like, they're, they're all good, but there's there's just a lot of them. And it, it can feel like a bit of padding. It's especially, maybe it's just for me. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's an uncomfortable play to go through Act 4. Because, you it, yeah, it's it's sort of like... Are we there yet? <laughs> There's a lot of that. <laughs> and I guess, yeah, I just I just found Norm's problem with his uh, meeting someone for a date or whatever was just so much less interesting than what was going on inside Johnny's head, you know? Um, even if it was it was fine content on its own on its own right, it's just like, yeah, I want to hear more about Johnny and Junebug, you know? Um, but hey. Um, at, towards the end of the scene, um, uh they're kind of wonder. Uh, John, uh, I think it's maybe Junebug is starting to wonder. Yeah, or maybe it's Johnny. He's kind of pitching the idea. Uh, it's like with with another person to play with. What else could we be? So they're kind of like, you know, they've they've been the dynamic duo so far, 
and Junebug is maybe a tiny bit hesitant that like, ah, would it mess with our dynamics? And Johnny is thinking, well, it would add to our dynamics, right? If we had someone, if we, if we evolved a little bit further, um, which is very, it's very nice to see that someone in this fucking game is doing okay. You know, they're, they're on some kind of upward trajectory, you know, that life is still worth living for someone, (laughs) you know, um, anything, anything more to say about the gas station? Um, I like the music. Yeah, it's cute. <laughs> There's a number of different tracks, right? I think so. Yeah, because I mean, uh, which reminds me, I got the um, I got the main soundtrack, and also uh, Ben Babbitt just recently released a, a companion volume that's like the uh, the 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 extras, you know, the, the, like the bits of music and the like things that wouldn't make it onto the main soundtrack. Uh, so you, you can you can listen to all those nice things <laughs> as well if you get that one too. Also, there's a Junebug album, which I got, but I still haven't listened to. It's like, there's a whole fucking album of this stuff. I'm going to have to get into that. Yeah, I, I like this scene. I like that. I like this scene quite a bit. Um, the, I, I also love the uh, the snacks like that Junebug goes looking for. And she's, she's like rifling through the, 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 the shelves. And it's like one of the packets will have like does not contain real turnips or whatever uh, on the back. It's just very weird. Inspired by real vegetables is one of the things it says on the snacks. Uh, I, I've definitely had that kind of snack before um, in Japan. Real uh, gas station it's, it's stuff. Very funny. Yeah, uh, there's also the gas station attendant who sort of has a conversation, I think, with Johnny about being anonymous and the ups and downs of it. And we sort of get his story about how his life fell apart and he ended up down here. Yeah, the money ran out or something. He was a trust fund kid. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he's like, oh, I have a super anonymous face. So, you know, I kind of enjoy being the background scenery to everyone else's life. <laughs> Which I guess is lampshading some of the role here. Yeah. Anyway, um, the companion scene for this is where Ezra stays on to hang around in the map room. Um, it starts off with Kate and Ezra at the helm doing navigation. Uh, she points out that the compass doesn't actually work down here. So you have to navigate by landmarks. Um, there's a bit about like, it's weird that we passed Duck Island before Dinosaur Rock, um, so that the locations on the Echo seem to shift around arbitrarily, which means that we have to update the maps. Um, th- th- this is very interesting to me, and it, it, it ties in with the memory stuff, because like, it, it reminded me of, um, I think, like Deleuze's reading of Bergson, right? Like, with um, about time and memory. That, like, I mean, my, my basic summary of that thing would be that in the, in the usual Newtonian model of time, it's a straight line. And so the past is a linear sequence of events that like has a definite ordering to it. But for Bergson and then for Deleuze, it's like we don't experience time that way. We we experience it in such a way that the past is just an unordered bag of events that are basically arbitrarily related to each other. Um, and that's that's how it feels in memory. And there's a lot of that going on here with um, you know the, the 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 seemingly arbitrary recombinations of memories that Will can can conjure up. And the seemingly arbitrary recombinations of locations on the river, um, having a resonance with each other. The, the structure of this space reflects the themes as well. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's quite fun. Um, it's very funny that when uh, Ezra goes down to the map room, Shannon is trying out Clara's theremin, and she's fucking terrible at it. <laughs> it's just very good. Uh, I mean, nobody's good at theremin, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah you have to be it's it's incredibly difficult to play a theremin so it's a brutal fucking instrument yeah uh, clara's very good at it you know. it's very much like one of those things where you don't get out of it what you put in 
you know, like you, you put in this so much work to maintain this kind of like perfection of form and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Makes it makes a cool sound. Okay. Can you imagine someone who practices a lot, like for years to like get the stylophone sound just right or something, you know, their like technique? Um, it's like a heat sink for effort. It just absorbs whatever you put into it. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you have that kind of mentality, that's you know. stylophone virtuoso. Um, kind of feels like if speed speed running games, you know, just incredibly. Uh, demanding in terms of dexterity and memorization and stuff and technique uh, but doesn't really amount to very much it's a it's a little bit more heat dump um for for people um on the way down also we get to have a little chat with conway this the, the interesting thing here is that his his conversation now that he's drunk he's he's much more lively he's he's rambling and he's flowing and he's much more he's he's much more of a lively character when he's drunk uh, in a way that's actually kind of disconcerting um um, and then we get down to the map room where Will has to update the navigation charts by basically copy-pasting and then uh, changing whatever's changed. So Duck Island and Dinosaur Island have to be swapped around. Um, so yeah, it must, must be pretty hard to navigate down here. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's nonsense, right? There's there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just things happen. And then, I, like, I don't know what the point of the chart even is. I guess like sometimes they don't change, so then there's some sort of constancy that might be useful. It's it it seems to be that yeah that the 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 pace of change is relatively slow, um, or that like they just wait for an accumulation of changes to to happen and then then copy the chart. Um, I don't know. It, it's all just theme stuff really at this point. Um, it's just thematic. Uh, when we get our river scene, then um, Will notes that there's a storm going on above the surface. Um, I think that I mean, and there's also another big long shaggy dog story about some weird shit um it's good stuff it's just not plot relevant really um at least i hope it's not i hope there's not some hidden detail i've missed you know and all that stuff i don't i don't remember it so probably not i think it's you know this stuff is very much the same sort of vibe as here and there along the echo it's like yeah it's it's cool but there's nothing much to say about it uh one thing I did like is I think it's at the start of this chapter, actually, uh, where uh, Kate, Kate's the captain, right? Yeah. Kate, Kate sort of calls out one of the water types that uh, <laughs> Will mentions on here and there along the Echo. So you're, it's like, oh, that's that's like hard water or something like, you know, what? One of the types of water that you get on the river. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess this is actually a thing that's down here. Okay. Yeah, you got to watch out for hard water and, and like, heavy water. That's the, that's the one you got to be real careful of. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, uh, the next proper scene, then, is uh, the rum colony, which is this, like, really dreamy tiki bar sort of thing that's on the shore. Also, why is there a shore on this fucking river? Um, also, like, wouldn't it... Wouldn't it stink and be full of garbage? But any, anyway, they've set up a, a tiki bar at the shore here, and everyone seems to enjoy it. Um, we're in control of Shannon as she capers around this place, and uh, Johnny and Junebook have changed their outfits again into some nice beachwear. It's a nice scene. It's 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 just pleasant to look at, um, and there's um, but there is some very plot important stuff that happens too. Yeah, uh, it's very strange and out of place uh, in a way. Um, but I think the interesting thing for me here was that they're serving rum, 
they're not serving hard times whiskey. Oh yeah, yeah, good pull, good pull. It's, it's like where does that rum come from? But from from the water, from the hard water, you know. <laughs> I, I guess. Know. Are there just pools of rum in the river, you know? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they get it delivered by the tugboat. But these people, these, like the owner here and stuff, they seem to be doing fine. Like they're not precarious in the way that most of the people along the Echo are. Typical petty bourgeois, you know? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> this, this, this petty bourgeois is very different from... Uh, that sorry bar we saw in the entertainment. Uh, so yeah, no, you're you're quite right here because this is the only this is the only location in the game that isn't like a burnt out like Scooby Doo wasteland f- failed sort of place, right? This is this is doing okay, you know. People are generally having a good time here, uh, and and the the alcohol for the most part is not portrayed as being like this ominous predatory thing in the way that the hard times whiskey is uh we get a little bit of that with uh conway because he's an alcoholic but most other people are are just having a good time indeed um so ezra's running about the place um shannon can just kind of dart around with the flashlight and look at trash on the ground um or talk to some of the people from the bureau are hanging around here uh, getting fucking loaded uh for a party um they don't know where lula is um but they're quite happy to um, wade out into the water and just be be obnoxiously drunk. Um, except for Rick. Rick is one, he's off to the side and he's stressed the fuck out. Um, he's he's lying in the sand. And he's got some real, real interesting lines about stress and burnout. He says, like, everyone deserves a rest, don't you think? Even you and I. Someday the lake and the riverbed will be dry. The shops along it will be bankrupt. The home's empty. The boat's abandoned. See, even the river will rest. Why should we be any different? It's, there's something quite there there is something vaguely sinister about the red glow then and the and the the mai tais but it's not sinister in the way the the hard times whiskey is yeah not really it's uh, yeah i mean it, it 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 my my sort of feeling in this place was like god damn it would be nice to be on vacation <laughs> like 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 <laughs> you know like Wow. Just imagine, you know, not being in your local neighborhood dealing with COVID and actually having a nice vacation. <laughs> so so I, I will confess to the, the, the night after playing this um, this act, um, I, we, were, we were hanging around and I, I went out and got the components from Mai Tais and we got fucking incinerated on these things. <laughs> so yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was very nice to, uh, to just sip these uh, sugar flower drinks. And, uh, and forget everything. That was beautiful. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, Will is chilling out here as usual. He's um, he's 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 going hard on the chill, as as if this guy wasn't slow enough as it is. Like, can you imagine him drunk? You know. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Where he talks about Conway and Shannon. And he's and he's like, oh, you know, Conway. He's an outward reflecting type who reflects the environment. And you and me, we're the inward reflecting types. Uh, you just sort of re- reflect our own inner experience. Um, and uh, one of the lines you can give to him is like, you know, I'm not so sure about that. And he's like, well, I'll be, you know. But I I chose that because I think he's completely wrong. <laughs> uh, 
No, like, absolutely not. Like, Conway is not the outward reflecting type. We saw, like, that scene where he put his hand into the into the uh, the fish tank and had that, like, inward reflection. Like, he's very much a person who is tormented by his inner experience. Um, and yeah. Shannon... Conway's like a black hole, you know? Shannon honestly seems to be more of the outward reflecting type. So I think, I think Will is just kind of full of shit as far as that goes. <laughs> He, he he has this like um affect of this like philosophical drifter uh wino sort of guy but like yeah it, it, his his insights and intuitions aren't aren't that good often you know oh yeah um yeah absolutely um conway however is sitting off in a corner um at a table uh, apparently alone and he's he's fucking loaded on these mai tais and he, he loves this stuff um, he's he's going fucking nuts on this thing. Yeah, he's 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 giving that uh, that kind of um, talk you get from alcoholics about like, oh, well, this isn't the hard stuff, you know. This is a slow drink. This is you know, like I I, I can handle this, you know. It's like no, you can't. You're an alcoholic. Yeah, and he's been giving those kinds of lines on the boat too, of like, oh, don't worry about me. I know how to handle my liquor. We like absolutely know that is not true. No, it's it's evident from his dialogue. From know? all of his stuff in Act Three, we know that's a load of shit. Yeah, I mean, so like we we know from the backstory with him, but we, we also know, and it is it is a really good move of them to shift his dialogue in this way to make him more loose and rambly because it's very apparent he's changed quite a bit under the influence of this stuff. He's got some nice spiel then about um like that he's 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 surrounded by memories, like he's drowning in old stuff tonight. Um it's all piled up around him and you know, he's, he feels like a kind of like a, a, he's like like an emotional hoarder almost. That it's it's all still with him and it's all still piled up. Um and he can't he can't re, he can't look at anything without being reminded of something else. And so, you know, the thing to do now is to to drink and uh, and just clear all that stuff out of his head. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's drinking and it's also moving on to the distillery, right? It's 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 he's a person who cannot be with his own thoughts. He cannot be sort of directed by himself. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think everyone kind of has these moods, right? Like of you know, you're surrounded by your memories and regrets and everything you look at reminds you of something else. And it's really hard. But Conway has it in an especially bad way. Yeah. So like what he's what he's hoping for here is that because um, this is a repeated pattern for him where he goes off the rails, then he he, he he gets blind drunk and then sobers up and gets a job to straighten him out. So that like the trying to keep down a job is what will dry him out. Um, and the distillery is kind of almost the ultimate expression of that because it's he's condemning himself to this uh, hellish servitude forever, and that'll that'll dry him out maybe permanently. Who knows if he stays on it, or it'll it'll kill him. Um, he definitely has vibes of this like um, person who like lives in the military, you know, the person who like really appreciates having this like regimented re- um, structure to their lives, and like because they they can't really function otherwise, and it's it's fucking tragic. Um, like he he needs that structure not because he thrives in it but because it allows him to cope. It's a it's a 
for him, it is a more tolerable substitute for alcoholism. Well, but when agency hasn't worked out for you, got to give up on that agency and have it just be structured entirely by the, the horrendous machine vortex of capital, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a very, um, I mean, we'll get into this more, but he's, he's a character who, who, a person who cannot live for himself. Indeed. Um, and we're getting these like first sad hints here that he's actually quite looking forward to, to going off to work. Um, yeah, and I, I do not read that in a positive light in any way. No, no, no. It's, this is this is this is sad. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's in, it's in the sense that one looks forward to nuclear apocalypse in in some in some very dark moments. You know, it's like it's very he, he's he's not actually happy about it. But this is there's something deeply weird and twisted about this that's like in some framing it can be it can seem like he's actually quite pleased. Um, to be destroyed by this. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, uh, to deal with anxiety and, uh, you know, my ADHD, sometimes when I'm hyperactive, I will go into, um, uh, binge eating. Um, and it's like, yeah, I can enjoy that in a certain way in the moment. But it's not a good thing. <laughs> it's like these kinds of self-destructive coping mechanisms have a kind of perverse pleasure to them. They're still bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoyment is far too narrow a word to to capture all of that. Really, um, there's 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 something something hideous going on there. It's like, oh, I'll just do the destructive thing. I'll do the self-destructive thing, and then everything will be at least different um it's 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 bad that's definitely what conway's got going on here we get this nice uh, lap steel performance from serrano who's up on the stage um while johnny takes the can around to to look for donations there's some really fun um prompts here because like the when johnny takes the can around the prompt is for the dollar amount that they'll they'll donate um when he when he gets five bucks from shannon he thinks to himself that she didn't have to do that because and it's like this this whole thing is the unsteady steadying the unsteady right that there's the same twenty dollar bill is just going up and down the zero and the echo um and everyone's everyone's trying to keep everyone else afloat um very familiar with this oh yeah absolutely um <laughs> with conway there's an interesting remark that he seems to be keeping odd company tonight um which leaves you wondering if the robots can see something we can't quite yet um and with Will, there's a fantastic one where, like, the, the prompt is for zero dollars. And Johnny this thing just thinks, Will never has any money. Good for him. <laughs> and moves on. Um, Slivet is com- communism of one. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, I think I think they get, like, 25 bucks from the, the Bureau folk as well. Um, the performance wraps up and they're leaving. Um, Shan- the, Johnny and Junebug remind Shannon to go fetch Conway. And if you walk back up there with the flashlight on, you will see that there are skeletons sitting at the table with Conway. Uh, Shannon can't see them, and it looks like Conway's talking to himself, um, which is all rather frightening. Uh, but we can see them. And yeah, apparently Johnny and Junebug can, right? Like, it's pretty strange. Um, uh, I guess they have a kind of uh, family resemblance. You know, in the sense of being, they've, they've been robots, you know, the robots are powered by something, you know, brings them a little bit closer to the, the electric skeletons. Um, powered by skeleton, skeleton energy, which is just electricity. Um, <laughs> anyway. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that scene where you see them all drinking together at the table, um, it it's very much that like dread you get when like someone you know has fallen in with a bad crowd. You're like, uh oh, this isn't gonna go well. And it, it absolutely is not going to go well. <laughs> Ooh, yikes. Um, the alternative scene for this is for uh, Shannon to stay in the video room and have a look around the videotapes. Um, she does so and finds a tape marked question mark. Um, and on it is Weaver's broadcast from earlier in the evening, um, which instantly sh- sends a shiver down Shannon's spine because she immediately recognizes the hum, um, the room, and the just Weaver standing there in the middle of the room um, and the subtitles come up. And this is where we get the actual text of what Weaver said. Um, So I'll quote here. Mail, school, and these magnificent tragic horses. Go underground as deep as you can go. The air is cool and the earth is damp. And when you close your eyes, you are surrounded by the dead. Remember where that is. You'll find your way from there. I think this place is what you are looking for. Some of it will wash away soon. But I think you'll be happy there, even without the male, school, and these magnificent tragic horses. And the text repeats. Um, It's a looped message. And this is really fascinating. Because what Weaver's doing here is she's imploring Shannon to set out on a journey to a happy place. And to start, she has to go underground. She has to go to the mine. But she'll find her way from there. And where she ends up, some of it's going to wash away soon. But she, like Shannon, will be happy there, even without the male, the school, or the horses. I, this is this is good because this kind of redeems Weaver a little bit after her, uh, you know, acts of evil in the previous act. Um, well, I mean, it doesn't redeem that, but it's like I, th- I thought it was really nice because I, I didn't see this on my first playthrough, and I actually only just saw it on this one. Um, I, I, just, I really appreciated getting this little bit of detail. Um, and seeing a little hint of what's coming next, because Weaver seems to have pre-knowledge of something that will happen later. Um, that's, that's right. She's predicted the flood uh, that um, that uh, uh, Will was mentioning uh, in retelling the story. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, it's, you know, we see a little bit of humanity from Weaver here. Uh, we see, like, she actually show, demonstrates some care for uh, Shannon. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, very different from her usual portrayal as this, like, strange alien person with, you know, this incredible uh, mathematical and technical skills um, that just sort of passes through place to place working on different projects um and just like alienating everyone she ever encounters um it's very nice um especially given that like i think later we'll see some evidence that this trying to get this broadcast through to shannon was an act of desperation for weaver um and that like i mean early on we remarked that like weaver as a name is obviously a kind of reference to her like spinning the story like she's 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 a spider who's spinning this web and Without this, it would seem that, like, her intentions in spinning that web were just to lead Conway to damnation. But, like, there was there was some in positive impulse here to send Shannon to a better place, uh, to, like, an actually nice place to live, um, even if it cost that. Yeah, it was a worthwhile worthwhile trade in her, her estimation. 
to to send send uh, um, send Conway to hell and uh, find some uh, redemption for Shannon. If Shannon asks Kate about this, um, she'll say that the the VCR on, down there just kicks into life at random and records whatever it happens to be picking up. And the only channel we get down here is WEVP TV, uh, which is a community broadcasting station. Um, she suggests that um, at some point later at the telephone exchange that, that we're going to stop there later, uh, she should try talking to Dashiel, who was a volunteer at that station um, at some point. And like, it's like, oh, yeah, you two will get along. You're both into like TVs and phones and stuff. Um, is this the first mention of WebP TV? I think so, except for the title screen on the game. <laughs> yeah, we finally get an explanation for what the fuck that means uh, every time you boot the fucking game up. Um, yeah. Um, well, I guess the whole thing is framed as if it's being broad, like the, the game is being broadcast by WFP TV. It's like a WFP production or something, um, which is quite fun. Um, yeah, cool. So the river, uh, on the river, um, Will lets us in on an interesting detail about the rum colony, that it's actually owned by a dead man named Vernon, uh, but nobody will identify the body so as to prevent the power company from getting control of the rum colony. Um, yeah, it's quite nice, you know. Um, maybe that's why they're doing fine down there. They haven't been taken over by the fucking skeletons yet. Uh, but yeah, the next scene is a phone. Um, I gotta love how, like, just... how little is going on in the title cards for these things. It's just like, a tree, a phone, you know? <laughs> yes. But the gang get off on a floating phone platform. Um, uh, initially, Conway is just rambling to Ezra, and then he just, like, pitches over the side and swims back to the boat. Um, and this is fun because it's, like, one of the very few times the character models animate in any significant way. Because uh, Shannon does this visible face palm and, like, shakes her head. And everyone looks kind of dismayed at, uh, at Conway swimming away. Because uh, otherwise, the, the, the models don't emote very much. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, he's sort of rambling about, um, you know, finding some more liquor, finding the good stuff somewhere uh, in a medicine cabinet or something. It's like, oh, that's where they, that's where they hide it, you know. Mm-hmm. He's going to get into the adrenochrome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is this is worrying. Um, uh, the structure of this thing then is that there's a guy in a red cap who's on the phone and when he gets off the phone our various characters get on the phone and switch back and forth um, when Will gets on he checks the messages for the Bureau of Secret Tourism uh, which brings in a split screen where we can see the the, the phone on the, the side table uh, with bears wandering around in the background at the Bureau uh, which is a really fun little detail um, these are in as the text plays out we also get the audio of these messages that have been left on the phone line um it's all stuff like uh you know because the prompts from here and there along the echo are things like if you yeah if you if you don't recall dialing this number leave us a message um or it's like stuff like leave us a message describing your earliest memory or describing why you can't sleep and so on and so it's a lot of these these little anecdotes like you know, uh, I'm about to cross an ocean and I worry about my dog. Or, uh, it was tough to hold on to the snake, but yeah, I, my hands are pretty damp. Uh, pretty weird. Um, or that I can't sleep because the trees are scraping against my window and it reminds me of a tongue scraping against my skin. Um, and it's just, it, they, they keep going. Um, yeah, there's 30, 30 messages. It's a lot. I, I, I think I listened to all of them this time. Um, that was fun. Um, 
when Will switches away, we get and the red hat guy switches on. We like, basically we get this repeating pattern where people ask Shannon, "Is like, hey, is is that guy okay?" You know, and it's like, well, yeah, it, it, it's either like, yeah, he's drunk, or he just needs to get his medicine or something. But like everyone is concerned for Conway um, and what's going on with them. Um, Kate calls up a client uh, by the name of Summer, um, a pregnant woman with a, you know, the split screen shows this really lovely house. Um, Kate is a birth doula as well as being the captain of the ship. Um, and we get this like early hint, uh, I think maybe in a, in a conversation after she gets off the phone of like her having this impulse to, um, to help women with difficult uh, childbirth. Yeah. Well, and th- this is interesting. Cause like, as you said, it's a very nice house. Um, and it's like these scenes we get on the phone are the only scenes we get of places that aren't like depressing and horribly run down. Yeah. They're in caked in mold or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like this, it's just like, Oh yeah. It's like, you know, some house out in the suburbs is in great shape and very bright and, and uh, clean. And then similarly, when Clara calls her sister, um, she get, we get this lovely shot of like the balcony outside, uh, an apartment block and it's just lovely sunlight, you know, um, the only sunlight we're going to see in this uh, in this act, I think. There is a world outside of Kentucky, and there's yeah, and, and there's a world outside of the zero, and uh, and it's 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 even worse. Sibling, the echo. Um, it's just a nice reminder, you know. Um, these little tiny shots of the outside world. Um, the at some point, the red cap guy identifies himself as Brandon from the storage facility, uh, who and he is still concerned for Conway. He does re- repeat the anecdote of like Conway just eating the fucking pavement earlier in the earlier in the, the night, um, and like at this point, yeah, Conway is definitely receding into the background and has less and less agency. As his the thing that's in the foreground is everyone's concern for him, uh, or they're they're just like bafflement at like this weird drunk who's hanging around. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's he's really a, a sorry sight. I hope he makes it back to the boat. You know, at this point, I was like, "Jesus, is this going to be the end of him?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah." Conway drowned. You know, um, that would be not good. Um, uh, if you are on the Carrington train, the phone will ring and Shannon will answer. Uh, and Carrington has had a phone booth, and he's he's like, for some reason, calling up to. Um, he needs help with the lighting for the play. Um, because, like, uh, you know, there's, uh, apparently the, the play has, um, has a lot of focus on, like, moonlight. And he's wondering how to how to light that. I think Shannon's suggestions are fun, where it's like, just have a guy dressed as the moon stand there with a flashlight. Or, um, you know, use a spotlight or whatever. Um, but I think this is probably the last of Carrington, is that right? Until the very end. Until, until the post-interlude. Yeah. So, I, I think... Um... This bit with Carrington is interesting because he's staging Death of the Hired Hand. And he mentions that the wife in that poem is the main character. Whereas when I read it, I took it that the, the, the higher hand is the main character. Um, and, you know, similarly, uh, at the beginning of the game, Conway is the main character. The hired hand is the main character. But in this act, we see Shannon as the main character this sort of by <laughs> is his road wife <laughs> yeah yeah it's like the wife in that in that story is like is kind of like Lisette, but is also kind of just uh a witness or a bystander to the death 
And I feel like that rhymes with Shannon's role in this act as regards uh, Conway. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good, really good observation. Um, that definitely makes sense. Um, and yeah, well, like by, by now we're well onto the the switch of perspectives. Um, it's becoming more apparent that Shannon's the real main character in this thing. Um, uh, the alternative scene for this on on the boat is um, the dogs lounging below deck, which is a solid five seconds of the dog sleeping on one of the decks, um, which is very cute. Uh, but I, um, I don't think we probably I don't think we have much to say about that scene aside from they're very nice dogs. Um, yeah, yeah. I wish them all the all the luck in the world. That's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we will conclude our discussion of the third act of Kentucky Route Zero. In the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook. We're on all the podcasting apps. So like, rate, and subscribe. You can also go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and throw us a couple of bucks a month to help keep the glowing skeletons away from the door and to get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as Swamp Site Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Mortal Science, and Jumpsuit Utopia. They are wonderful shows and wonderful folks. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this show. Bye.